so. Lord, we are bowed before you this morning to recognize that you are our redeeming love. You are the redeemer. You are the light that that brings um, that shines light into the darkness, into the dark places in our lives and um, and in the community and and in our surroundings. Lord, we just thank you and recognize that. Um, that there's no amount of darkness that can prevent your light from shining. Mm -hmm. And we just thank you for that. Mm -hmm. We thank you, Lord, that we can be here this morning. Mm -hmm. We thank you for the opportunity to be here and to hear the word that you have for us. And we do, um, we do say, hear our hearts, Lord. Mm -hmm. Hear our hearts. Speak to our hearts, mm -hmm. Lord. Transform us, make mm. us into the people that you've called us to be. Mm. And I pray about, I pray, Lord, for your shield of protection to be around all of us this morning, mm. to be around this congregation. Mm. Mm. I pray, Lord, um, against the plans and schemes of the enemy that always come to kill, steal, and destroy what mm. you're doing. And I pray, Lord, that that you would give us um, ability to um, to be wise and to discern, Lord, what it is that you're saying, calling mm -hmm. us to at this time. May our hearts be open before you. And I pray for Conrad as he has um, been preparing to um, deliver the word that you have for us. Lord, I pray that as he speaks, Lord, that his eyes will be fixed and focused on you, the author and perfecter of his faith and the lover of his soul. Mm -hmm. Lord, that he would speak um, faithfully and obediently the words mm -hmm. that you have. We pray, Lord, um, against any fear of man mm -hmm. for Conrad, that he, would, um, that he would be bold and courageous, mm -hmm. as you have called him to be bold and courageous. Mm -hmm. And I pray for your protection to be around Conrad, both now as he's preaching, Lord, for strength and for, um, for clarity, for his voice, Lord, and I pray for your protection to be around him in the week to follow, Lord. We know that no weapon formed against him will prosper. We thank you, Lord, for your many promises that you have given us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord and my Savior and Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. It's uh, wonderful to see you here and to be back together again this morning. We continue to wind our way through this fall sermon series called Turning the World Upside Down, the Messiah through the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. And I do want to remind us that the emphasis here is on the Messiah and not on Paul. And yet it is through the transformation of Paul's life and Paul's understanding of who the Messiah is that we come to understand the Messiah in a new way. And I hope that when this series is over, you never see Paul quite the same way, that you never see his epistles quite the same way that you've been impacted by the way you've come to understand and the Spirit has led us to understand Paul, his life, 
and most of all, his beloved Messiah. Next week, our brother Donway Dikway will be preaching. He'll be preaching a sermon related to Paul also. It will not be out of the booklet. And so uh, he will provide study guide questions for you next Sunday for the following week, for those of you who are doing them in Sunday school. And he will also do the weekly email on Monday of next week. Have you ever felt unworthy of being loved? Unworthy of being loved by other people? Unworthy of being loved by God? Perhaps you came in the door this morning feeling particularly unworthy of being loved. Perhaps it was something you did this week. Perhaps it was something somebody said to you about you this week. Perhaps it's a secret that you're sure if others knew about, they would see you in a different light and treat you differently from here on out. Perhaps it's just this vague, gnawing thought that there's something really wrong with me. And that if people found out, they wouldn't care for me, they wouldn't love me anymore. And as I prepared for this week, I wondered if the Apostle Paul ever felt that way himself. Think with me for a moment. Paul was guilty of being an accomplice in the murder of the Messiah follower, Stephen. He was perhaps a participant in others as well. Paul was an enemy of the Messiah if anybody was. Perhaps he witnessed the face of Stephen as Stephen struggled to breathe and struggled for life as the stones came into his face and blood ran down and crushed his skull. Think about it. Paul, as much as anyone, had reason to feel unworthy of the Messiah's forgiveness and the Messiah's grace. Paul, as much as any of us, had reason to struggle that the Messiah would ever accept him and love him, a sinner such as he was. And Paul, in fact, does not feel worthy. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He says he is the least of the apostles and not even fit to be called an apostle because he said, I persecuted the church of God. Paul feels it. Paul feels within himself this sense that I I came against the Messiah and against the work of the Messiah from the very beginning. I suspect there are nights he wondered what Stephen would have done with his life and what Stephen would have done with the gospel had he not been part of of that martyrdom of Stephen and Stephen's stoning. But Paul also does not stay in the pit of unworthiness. Paul does not stay in the hell of self-incrimination and accusations, whether they're from others or from himself. Paul is clearly aware of his sins and his past sins, but on that road to Damascus, he was ambushed. He was ambushed by the Messiah, and he was, spit, he was smitten in that moment by the love of God. And he would never be the same. That face-to-face encounter with the Messiah changed him forever as he turned his life around and committed it to the Messiah and the gospel of the Messiah. And the reality of that love of Paul for the Messiah expressed through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus seems to deepen for Paul the older he gets. The older he gets and the later you get in his work and his writings, the more you get the sense that Paul, as I said for the title this morning, is standing on the edge of this huge galaxy of God's love. That he realizes he's just approaching it. He's just seeing it from a distance. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, he's going to say that I, I just I don't see it fully, but someday I will see it face to face. Someday I will experience the love of Messiah fully face to face. In other words, as Paul's admission of his unworthiness increased, it also seemed to increase his love for Jesus. 
As Paul becomes more aware of the leastness of his life, the unworthiness of his life, it also increases his love for Messiah. Why is this the case? Because the best news of God's love is for those who realize how sinful and unworthy we are. Those who realize how unworthy and sinful we are are those who most run to the Messiah's open arms. The good news sounds best to those who recognize that their lives are bad news without the good news of the Messiah. The good news sounds best to those who recognize that their lives are bad news without the good news of the Messiah. These are the folks, like, that, like the sinner on the cross that we read about this morning, who are quick to acknowledge that they are sinners, quick to acknowledge and confess their sins and their shortcomings. Those are the ones who receive this grace of the Messiah. Paul says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our failures and our faults and our wrongdoings, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This, this little verse is not a commandment. It's not, confess your sins and you'll be clean. Confess your sins and he'll forgive you. No, no, no. It's the way salvation works. It's a spiritual principle here. I think we hear this and we say, now go out and tell people, if you confess your sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive your sins and then everything's all right. This is not a commandment. This is a principle of the way God's salvation works. Listen to the principle. When we confess that we are broken, when we confess that we have made some bad choices, that we, when we confess that we have hurt other people intentionally or even unintentionally, knowingly or not knowingly, but when we hear that we have and we confess this, when we confess that we focus more on ourselves than on others, then and only then are we in a posture to receive God's grace. Then and only then are we in a posture to receive God's love and forgiveness and grace. So his grace and his love are always there. But for that grace to flow, we have to confess that we need it. And if we don't confess that we're broken, if we don't confess that we're sinful, the grace cannot flow because it only flows to those who need it. He said himself, I came to heal the sick, not those who were well. The grace of God flows to those who know they need it. As long as we insist that we are good enough. And I, and I want to say as Christians, we can fall into this. We can come at some point in our lives and give our life to Jesus. But then we live as if we are good enough. That there's nothing wrong with us. That we have no faults. That we have no sins. That we have no failures. That we have nothing to confess. And that's rubbish. We have some stuff to confess every day. At least I do. Because that's the life we live in this world. And so if we're not coming clean with God every day, it's not because we're good enough, folks. If there's not a moment in your day when you say, God, forgive me where I failed you today, I want to encourage you to start putting that moment in. Because the grace ain't going to flow until you're confessing. But you will be surprised how the grace flows when you confess to God and to others that you have failed Him and failed them. It's the principle. Confess and the grace begins to flow. As long as we insist we're good enough and have nothing to confess, as long as we deny that we have hurt others, even unintentionally, as long as we refuse to accept responsibility for our failures, as long as we deny how broken we are, we also can't be forgiven by God or cleansed by our, from our sin. 
In other words, without confession of our broken and busted selves, we cannot be saved. Why? Because the grace can't flow to us. We don't need it. I'm good enough. Christ didn't need to die for me. And I want to remind us that we can do this even as followers of Jesus who've given our lives to Christ. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone where you were forever apologizing and asking forgiveness of the other individual, but you never or rarely heard any apology back or heard them acknowledge their own failures? Or perhaps you were the one in the relationship who heard someone apologize to you repeatedly, but you yourself never owned your own failures. It's impossible to have an ongoing, intimate, deep, meaningful relationship in such a situation. Where one of the parties refuses, whether it's a spouse or a child or a parent, but where one party refuses to acknowledge their brokenness and their own failures, it's impossible to have an intimate, deep, meaningful relationship with them. Why? Because our refusal to acknowledge the hurt we have caused and our shortcomings means that we never put ourselves in a position to receive grace. We never put ourselves in a position to receive God's love or the love of the other person in return. You see, the more we confess our sins, the more we are going to be recipients of grace. The more we confess our sins to God and to one another, the more we position ourselves to receive the grace. Because grace only flows and comes to, who, to those who recognize that they are broken and they need a Savior. That was the whole point of Jesus' parable of the publican and the Pharisee. One knew he needed the grace and he confessed. The other said, I don't need the grace. Folks, we can easily be either publican or Pharisee even if we've come to Jesus. Which are you this morning? Are you the publican who readily says to those in your family, to those at work, to those in the church, I'm sorry. I screwed this up. I failed you. I failed this. Or are you the one who walks around and says, or, you, or the one who walks around and people say, you know, that person never says they're sorry. That person never apologizes. I just want you to think for that, about that for a moment because we can say we're forgiven by Christ but we can also block the grace of Christ flowing in our lives even after we've given our life to Christ. Because that grace cannot flow where it is blocked by our lack of confessing our sins on a regular basis. Does that mean we're not saved and going to heaven? I'm not the judge. But I know the grace only flows in a relationship when I'm confessing my sins to God and to one another. You see, the more we confess our sins, and I'm repeating myself, but it's important, the more we're going to be recipients of grace. God's grace and the grace of others. Because grace only comes to those who recognize their brokenness and confess their sins and failures. The same individuals who fail to recognize their faults, the same individuals, those of us who fail to recognize our faults, are also those who are more likely than others to use the confessions and sins and failures of, our, uh, of us against us when we do confess. Why? Because accepting our apology would require them to offer grace, something they've never experienced. Accepting our apology and forgiving us would mean they would have to acknowledge that grace was needed, but they can't offer grace if grace is something they've never received, if they've never confessed their sin. Does this make sense? For grace to flow in your life, in my life, there must be confession of our sin. 
And if we are folks who do not confess our sin, we are not going to ultimately forgive others either because we haven't been forgiven. Oh, we can say, I've asked Jesus into my heart, but it's got to be an asking Jesus into my heart every day, folks. The life of the, and the discipleship of Jesus Christ means that daily I am coming to him and saying, I am a broken man or a broken woman, and I need your forgiveness. As I start this morning and as I end this day, forgive me. And when we do, the grace flows. And it is the same in our relationships with one another in church, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. If we say, I am sorry, those three little words, those are powerful words. I will never forget, and I've shared this before, when my father, when I was about 40, said, I am sorry that I was not a dad I should have been. Do you think that brought healing? Do you think the grace began to flow in our relationship? Yeah. That was the turning point in our relationship when my dad said to me, I am sorry. Fathers and mothers and grandparents, it is never too late to say to your children, I am sorry. And when you do and when we do, you will see grace flow in that relationship like you have never seen it before. And it's true in our relationships with friends. It's true in ministry. It's true in our workplace. It's true. Confession is the key that unlocks the grace. Confession is the key that allows the grace to flow. When I confess to you, I have the opportunity to receive your grace back. You get the choice of whether you give it to me or not. But I open myself to receive that grace. And my experience of that grace means I am more likely to offer it back to you when you need it as well. Do you want to receive grace? Do you want to experience God's love for you in a new way? Do you want to be able to offer grace to others? Then confess where you've hurt others and failed God. I do want to note this. There are relationships that we all are in at times where one party is the one, as I've said, acknowledging the wrong and the other party never or rarely does. And for those of us who've experienced that kind of relationship, and I suspect most of us have, although I've also said we can be the ones sometimes who are never apologizing or asking for forgiveness of our spouse, our children, our friends, eventually that kind of dynamic creates a toxic, destructive relationship. It just does. And if you've been in one, you know it. It creates a to toxic, destructive relationship of untrust, of mistrust of one another. When conversation after conversation only yields the same result, where you're seen as guilty and the other is seen as innocent, then it may be necessary to set some boundaries around that relationship for your own emotional and spiritual well-being. It may be necessary to remove yourself from that relationship and to surrender that relationship to the Messiah and to trust Him to do His work in them. And I want to say to you that if you're in that kind of relationship and it's beginning to destroy and be toxic, that it's okay to set boundaries around that relationship. Now, if you're in a marriage, don't leave your marriage. But there are healthy ways of setting boundaries in marriages as well. The boundaries are important if we're going to be effective at ministry, at life, in our workplaces, in our homes. The love of Messiah does not mean that we must forever allow others to walk all over us, to bully us, to scream at us, to accuse us, to condemn us, to shame us. It just doesn't. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 in a moment. 
If we believe that by God's grace we have done our part, then the healthy response is to create a boundary to protect ourselves from the ongoing destructiveness of that relationship. As Christians and Mennonites in particular with a commitment to peace, and we heard it a couple of weeks ago as we had some discussion after the sermon, this has been difficult for us to do without feeling guilty to set these kind of boundaries. But sometimes it is required. And what we find is that the apostle who wrote 1 Corinthians 13 is also the one who told the church in 1 Corinthians 5 to set boundaries around the one who was living in sin. The apostle Paul wanted so badly to receive God's grace that he didn't mind at all acknowledging he was the least of the disciples. He didn't mind at all acknowledging that he was the chief of sinners. Paul doesn't resist joining that sinner's choir in the corner because he knows they are broken and busted people singing Amazing Grace. And he wants more than anything else to be part of that choir. Let me join that choir, says Paul. I'm worse than any of them. Why was grace flowing in Paul's life? Why was he seeing the galaxy of God's love the longer he lived? Because he was recognizing his unworthiness the longer he lived. The more that we recognize we are unworthy creatures, the more that we recognize there is no goodness in us, the more we will receive the grace of God and recognize his love for us. It's just the way it works. But the more I put up barriers to recognizing my own sin and brokenness, the less I am going to receive God's grace and the less grace I will have for others. You know that? If I am not receiving God's grace, I will not show grace to other people because I can't, because I don't know what it is. It's not part of my life. Hurt people hurt people. People who receive grace give grace. It's just the way it works. So I want to ask you this question this morning. How are you at saying I'm sorry? How are you at saying I'm sorry? What would your family say? about you when asked that question? How are you at asking for forgiveness? Whether you knew you hurt them or not, you ask for forgiveness because you're just sorry they're in pain. You're just sorry they're hurting. You're just sorry whether you thought you did it or not, you ask for forgiveness because you're, you love them so much that you will take on what you didn't know you had done for the sake of their love because frankly, that's what Christ did, right? Right? Christ took on what he had not done so the grace could flow to us. Christ took on what he had not done. The scripture says he became sin for us so that the grace would flow like it never flowed before from heaven. And if you want heavenly relationships, then confess your sins and ask for forgiveness and watch what God does in your family. And watch what God does in your marriage. And watch what God does in the workplace. You cannot control the other's response. And as I said, there are times where they will not receive it. Because they've never received it to begin with for themselves. And then you can't do anything about it. Your conscience is clear. But God's not done working in their life. And relationships that are the way they are now may not always be the case. As we continue to pray for those individuals. I've been incredibly fortunate to have a number of excellent mentors, incredibly fortunate. Since I was in college in the last 35 years, I have had mentors as men who have spoken into my life, who have been models for me of leadership and ministry, 
And one of them is Keith Weaver at Lancaster Mennonite Conference. I've worked with Keith for, Keith for almost 15 years. We see each other almost every week. Keith is the father of Kendra and the grandfather of the Nisley children, who he's very, very proud of. But Keith has led a remarkable tenure over the last 20 years, watching the conference go through one conflict after another, watching the number of congregations decline precipitously and now rebound once again. Keith has been accused of many, many things. But one of the things that I have watched Keith do over and over and over again, in public and in private, is say this, and this is the phrase, that was a failure of my leadership. That was a failure of my leadership. I'm saying this because he said it publicly. That was my leadership failure. Time and again, Keith has owned failures that were his, but that were also not his. Keith has owned things that were his, but also things that were not his. And he owned things that were not his for the sake of the grace to keep flowing in the church. The failures that others would not have owned, Keith owned them. And I'm convinced that it's one of the major reasons Keith has been so effective over the long haul in Lancaster Conference. Because he is aware of and ready to admit his faults. And I've watched Keith receive grace from others in some of those situations. I've watched him not receive grace from others in those situations. And I've also found that when I failed Keith and had to confess to him, he's been quick as anyone to give me the grace. Over the past month or so, as you know, I felt it necessary to confess some of my own failures through statements I've made in the messages or things that i portrayed. Why? Because I want to be quick to acknowledge my sin as a spiritual leader of this congregation. I want to be quick to acknowledge my failures and faults in this congregation because I believe that when leaders do that, the grace flows to the congregation. That you receive grace if I am, if I am confessing. And if we confess to one another, the grace flows all that much more. The church of all places ought to be where we confess that I failed you, that I'm sorry. And when leaders fail to do it, it blocks it all up. I'm convinced of that. But when leaders do it, it creates the potential for that grace to flow. And right now in Lancaster Conference, God's favor is upon the conference in a powerful way. And I think Keith's leadership is a very important part of that in his transparency and openness. Again, the confession of our sin creates opportunities for us to receive grace and to offer grace and leading, leads to love and intimacy with others. When Paul met the Messiah, he found grace, and that grace would open him up to a God whose love he had never understood before. And the longer he knew the Messiah, the more he was aware of the Messiah's love for him. I'd like you to turn to two passages, 1 Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and Romans 8. There are, if you're new to us, or not new to us, there are Bibles, should be Bibles under the chair in front of you. And I also want to say, if you've begun attending our congregation since we started the series, there will be booklets after church on the back table um, that has the, the materials for the series, uh, and we invite you to pick them up because there's still plenty of weeks left in the series. Ephesians 3, 948 in the Pew Bible, and Romans 8. Caught you by surprise, Colin. 9.16. Thank you, both of you. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. I keep reading this passage. 
Because it's a marvelous passage. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches... I mean, listen to this language of Paul. He's sitting in prison, by the way. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, or rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, say this with me, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep. Let's do it again. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of who? Christ, the Messiah. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, it's more than in our heads, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And I love that phrase. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, because Paul learned that, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ the Messiah throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And now I'm going to turn to Romans 8 and begin with verse 28. And then I'm going to skip a few verses um, and go down. Um, I'm going to go 28. And then I'm going to go to 31. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? No one, Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of Messiah? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, says Paul, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear the vastness of God's love in these passages that Paul recognized? Paul is looking out on the vastness of the Messiah's love. And he says to us in Ephesians 3 that we can be rooted and established in God's love So that no amount of false accusation from others, from Satan, or from ourselves has the power to pull us back and out of the truth. That we can have the power to know how wide and long and deep God's love is. The infiniteness of that love. The galaxy nature of that love. That God's love just keeps going out and out and out until it embraces all of creation. That we can have the power to know how wide and long and deep it is. That God's love is greater than what happens up here. That God's love is something that happens here. That it's not just ultimately comprehended in our brains, but it's comprehended through our relationships. Our relationship with God. In those deepest parts of who we are, that's where we experience God's love. That nothing can separate us from God's love. It's never God's love over there and I'm over here. It's always God's love is within me and around me. But again, I have to open myself up to that love. I have to recognize I need that love. That in every hardship of our lives, none of them will conquer us, but instead we will conquer them. 
through the one who loved us. And then at the end, he gives this long list of things that Paul himself had experienced. You know, one of the things that's impressed me in this series as I've worked on it is I used to read Paul as if he was writing separate from his own experience. Of course he wasn't writing separate from his own experience. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Scripture doesn't mean it was written outside of the experience of the one who's writing it. Do we think the Spirit wasn't working in Paul? Of course he was working in Paul. And what was flowing out of Paul was flowing out of what the Spirit was doing in Paul. What Paul is saying is, look, I have experienced death and life and angels and demons, the present, the future, powers, height, depth. None of it is going to separate you from Christ because I've learned that. I've learned that when I open myself to the Messiah, nothing separates from me from the Messiah. Paul knew that one day he would stand alone like you will and like I will before the Messiah. And Paul will give account not on the basis of what others have said about him, not on the basis of what others have done to him, but on the basis of how he responded to the love of Messiah. You're going to stand there for that, and I'm going to stand there for that. If that doesn't minimize what others have said or done to you, I don't know what will. And some days I just allow myself to go there and to say, God, someday it's just going to be me and you. And that's both the scariest thought and the most comforting thought. Someday it's just going to be you and God. And nothing else is going to matter except how did you respond to love, the love of the Messiah? Do you see how Paul ties this love back into the Messiah? It was the Messiah who brought this new understanding of God's love to him. It was the resurrection of the Messiah that ensured that death and hell and demons and darkness would not be able to separate us from the love of God. The resurrection of the Messiah has sealed our fate, brothers and sisters, that nothing can separate us from God's love. But what does that love look like? It's one thing in our culture to talk about love. We have no idea sometimes what love looks like. It looks like lots of things. I'd like you to turn with me as we're moving towards the closing to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. What's the? 932. I'm going to read it in a moment. And you might be wondering as you turn there why we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13 if we're talking about the love of God. Isn't this a wedding chapter? Isn't this a chapter for our relationships for one another? Isn't this a chapter that tells me every time I read it how I should love others? And, and, and really, it's not the love chapter, it's really the guilt chapter, because every time I read it, I see places where, I mean, nearly every place where I'm not living it out. I mean, was this chapter made to make me feel guilty? To make me feel bad about myself? No! I want you to see this chapter differently this morning. Is it a prescription for how we're to live? Yes. But greater than that, it is, an aware, it is a description of God's love. Because God's never going to ask you to love in a way that He doesn't love. God's never going to model love and say, you know, I did about half, now you go do the full thing. This is a reflection of God's love to us. Because there's no way for me to achieve this outside of God's love. There's no way for me to achieve 1 Corinthians 13 outside of being grounded and rooted in God's love. Because any love I have for you or anyone else has to come from the Messiah because I can't muster it up. On a good day, I can be nice. On a bad day, watch out, right? You can be too. Well, we are all that way. No, this is a description first and foremost of God's love. 
of a Messiah's love that Paul was so excited about in Ephesians 3 and 8. Yes, it's a set of instructions about how to love. But more than that, it's about God's love. I need the power of God's Spirit to be able to grasp the love of God. And I need that same power to enable me to love others as 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us. 1 Corinthians 13 is about agape love. There are four types of love in Greek, as you, some of you are aware. There's eros love, which is erotic or sexual love. There's filial love, which is brotherly love. There's storge love, which is family love. And there's agape love. And agape is consistently used in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's used throughout the Scripture in the New Testament to identify God as love. The passage in 1 John 4 says God is love. It says God is agape. So this is a reflection in 1 Corinthians 13 of God's love. The other reason I think this reflects God's love more than primarily a prescription for how we love one another is that the end of the chapter never made sense to me until this week I saw it differently. Because Paul does this weird thing. He goes from this is how you should love and then he says, then he goes into this eschatological part that we've been talking about. That is, he goes into the future. He switches from this is how you ought to love And then he says, but wait a minute, I only see part of it. Someday I'm going to see it all. And I never made the connection. I mean, are these like two different chapters? No. Paul's saying, look, this is how God loves. I only see it part way now, as in a mirror, but someday I'm going to see it fully. Does that make sense? This is God's love. I don't get it fully now, but someday I'm going to experience it fully face to face. Of course, these two parts of the chapter tie together. But only if we understand the first eight verses as a description of God's love and the prescription for us as to how we're to love, but not only that. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, I'm going I'm to read it with a little paraphrasing to help us and I think the way I'm reading is very consistent with the way Paul talks about God's love in Ephesians 3 and Romans 8 if I speak in the tongue of men or of angels but am not rooted and grounded in the love of the Messiah I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that moves mountains, but I am not rooted and grounded in the love of the Messiah, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but am not rooted and grounded in the love of the Messiah, I am nothing. I gain nothing. The love of the Messiah in which I am rooted and grounded is patient toward me. His love is kind to me. The love of the Messiah does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And I can hear Paul when he was writing this say, including my persecution of his people and the death of Stephen. The love of Messiah does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. The love of Messiah always protects me. Always trusts, always hopes that I will choose his way, always perseveres and comes after me and pursues me. The love of the Messiah never fails me, and now these three remain faith, hope, and love, 
but the greatest of these is the love of the Messiah. Folks, Paul is describing the love with which he was smitten on the road to Damascus and that just kept growing for him across his life. A love that Paul had experienced as being patient with him, a love that was kind to him, a love that kept no record of wrongs, including the death of Stephen, a love that always protected him, a love that always persevered after him, a love that never failed Paul. That's what Paul experienced of God's love. No wonder, despite the fact that Paul is also the apostle of grace and faith, he says at the end, the greatest of these is the love of Messiah. Because without the love of the Messiah, we would have no hope for the future. Without the love of Messiah, there would be no reason to have faith in the Messiah. Which is why Paul, in the key verse of this chapter of this series, which is right in front of us, Galatians 2.20, says it like this. Let me explain it like this. Through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with the Messiah. I am, however, alive. I'm alive, he says, but it isn't me any longer. It's the Messiah. Remember Paul's teaching that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So he can say that the Messiah now lives in me with confidence And you can say, the Messiah now lives in you. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life I still live in the flesh, I live within the faithfulness, the loyalty of the Son of God, who what? Who loved me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, Paul had this most amazing love affair with the Messiah in which he turned from world and from the Pharisaic tradition in this incredibly radical way to a loving Messiah. And he never forgot it, and it only grows the older he gets. Paul is saying that the Messiah has overtaken my life now. The Messiah has overtaken me in a way that, it, that, that I had never been overtaken before. My life is now characterized by the evidence of Messiah in me. I look like the Messiah. I speak like the Messiah. I think like the Messiah. My attitudes reflect the Messiah. My understanding is based on what I hear from Messiah. And though I am still in my body, I live in that body by the faithfulness and loyalty of the Messiah who loved me and gave himself for me. And I want to just add a note. In the culture in which we're living, this love of the Messiah is not an inclusive love as our culture defines inclusivity. Nor is it a tolerant love in the way that our culture defines tolerance. Why? Because this was a most costly love. This was a most costly love. This was the most exclusive love of a God who loved us and cared for us, that cost the death of our Lord, and that ultimately costs and requires the death of our own selves to surrender our lives to that Messiah. This love, both to receive from God and to offer to others, depends upon our humble confession of our sins and failures. This week I drove to Juniata County to celebrate my father's 77th 77th birthday. We had breakfast together on Wednesday. And we had one of the sweetest and most precious times we've ever had together. A few days later, Dad wrote me a note expressing his joy at the time we had together and his love for me. And you know what, folks? After I read that note, I said to myself also almost immediately, Conrad, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. Your dad loves you. It doesn't matter 
Your dad loves you. How grateful I am that a dad like mine has lived to be 77 and I 55, that our relationship can grow older and our love deeper for one another in the way that Paul experienced the Messiah's love. What I experienced this week with my dad is just a model, an earthly model, of what happens to us as we stay connected to Jesus over the course of our lives. I think Paul had reason to say no one else, he doesn't allow anyone else to judge him because he knew that the Messiah loved him. Didn't mean he wasn't accountable to folks, but at the end of the day, what people said about him compared to Apollos or Paul or Peter just didn't matter to him because the Messiah loved him. Others' opinions didn't matter. If the Messiah loves me, everything else is rubbish, says Paul. If the Messiah loves me, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If the Messiah loves me, then I have not run my race in vain. But folks, how about us? Someday, as I've said, each of us will stand in front of the Messiah alone. Will you arrive on that day having been rooted and grounded in his love? Spending time with the Messiah is the only way we root and ground ourselves in his love. Because otherwise, we'll root and ground ourselves in other people or other things. We've got, we've got roots on us. And they're going to go down somewhere. Will they go down into the Messiah's love by the time you spend with the Messiah? Will we arrive having confessed our sins to God so that we can receive his grace and forgiveness? If we have done this, if there is ongoing sin, if we've already received Christ as our Savior, but there's ongoing sin that we need to confess this morning, can we receive his love again in a new way? Give to the Messiah this morning your sense of worthlessness, recognizing that doing that is just the good news. Because on the other side of that is the love of the Messiah. I'm convinced that most of the sins we struggle with, most of our resistance to confess our sins, most of the reason we struggle to love others is that we have not fully received the love of the Messiah for us, for you, and for the world. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, We thank you so much that you have come to take on yourself what was not yours to take on. That you became sin for us and for this entire world so that we can confess our sins and receive this incredible grace, this incredible love that flows to us from heaven. I just pray for each one of us who's heard this word this morning that you would speak to us, that you would convict us of those places in our lives where we have failed to be aware of, to recognize, to confess our sins, our faults, our misgivings, our brokenness. And we would open ourselves up knowing that when we do that, it just opens the tap of heaven to flow over our lives. May we not be in fear of confessing our sins to you or to others, knowing that it's when we do that that we receive your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.